back, everyone. This is Founders Talk. I'm your host, Adam Stikoviak. This show features in-depth, one-on-one conversations with founders. You can tune into this show live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Central Standard Time right here on 5x5. And this is episode number 44. And I'm joined by Robert Shaw, the founder of Capsule and the maker of Minimalist, a very, very cool wallet. Robert, welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for having me. So somebody says in the chat room, we were having a little pre-chat before this, so thanks, Dave Becker, for mentioning that. So, Robert, if you want to hop into IRC, you can go to slash chat. I, I assume Dan was that smart, and guess what? Dan is that smart. <laughs> but uh, an unusual start to the show. If you're, if you're a longtime listener, we don't always have that kind of preamble chat right at the beginning of the show. But, um, you know, we're here with, with you, Robert. Uh, you're the founder of Capsule, but you're most known for, at least, uh, most of your recent fame, unless I'm wrong, is because of this very cool minimalistic wallet that you, that you created called Minimalist. Yes. Um, I guess that's how the, the most people know me now is, um, is for this, this campaign we had last year for, uh, we like to call it a, um, a better, smarter, more sophisticated slim wallet that holds cash. So that we had that, uh, last October on Kickstarter and, uh, um, did, uh, fairly well. And now we have a brand that we relaunched, uh, in April, um, with the new identity and logo and um, sort of updated version of the minimalist, and that's that's where we are now. And that uh, so that was last October, um, right? I'm not sure if we should dive into the Kickstarter right away or or what, but uh, I think the the easiest thing I like to have guests do when they come on the show is at least do some level of an intro. But I guess the the Kickstarter and the minimalist was uh, your most recent claim to fame. But if it weren't for that, how else would you introduce yourself? Um, well, traditionally, I mean, I've, my, my career was in management consulting. So most of the folks that are meeting in a a business context, um, I would, that's how I would introduce myself, basically, uh, a a jack of all trades sort of generalist with respect to strategy and operations and consulting, which is a little bit of a boring way to describe my career, but essentially I was a, you know, a business doctor and helped people go in and diagnose issues or challenges they were having and basically prescribed, um, solutions or, um, medicine for how to fix their, their businesses. A business doctor. Huh? That's a, that's a pretty cool, yeah. uh, that's a pretty cool name. That's the first time I heard that one actually. So you mentioned medicine, what kind of medicine will you prescribe or did you prescribe? Um, well, the, I, I started my consulting career um, consulting for hotels, restaurants, timeshares, that kind of thing. I, I, my background is actually I, I went to the hotel school at um, at Cornell. And when I came out, um, I had an opportunity to work with Arthur Anderson, which was still alive at that time, and basically um, did a lot of uh, cool work with uh, hotel chains, figuring out how to improve their operations. Um, generally speaking, uh, there was a big push for introducing new technology, um, for improving reservations at the time, the internet was just kicking up for things like, you know, Expedia and Travelocity. So, um, did a lot of work with kind of the disintermediation of travel agents and like the travel booking process. So, um, really focused on that. And then, uh, 
over time, well, 9-11 happened and then the entire hospitality industry sort of tanked. So started shifting my, um, my specialties to more media and entertainment type projects. So that brought me to working with a lot of cool um, entertainment properties like uh, Discovery Channel, Paramount Pictures, Mattel, um, doing cool things around branding and intellectual property. And then, um, well, I, I kind of forgot what our what our question was, <laughs> what our topic was. Um, but. Yeah, we're just we're just trying to get a, a gauge for what, what some of your background is. But I, I guess since you're mentioning, I mean, it sounds like uh, the era that you're in for for those that are catching up is around 2001 because that's when 9/11 happened. So like pre yep. that time frame and some of the things you were doing as a consultant before. That was asking you about uh, you know being a business doctor and what kind of medicine you prescribe. I, I was just kind of curious right. what that, what that looks like to prescribe medicine to a business. Is it, uh, you know, is it processes, is it change? Is it, you know, yeah, typically, management changes? What what does that mean? Yeah. Typically it's, it's kind of, you know, I would, if we're, if we're keeping within that vernacular, like I was in sort of a, a general practitioner. So we, we would go in for companies and do anything from, you know, general process, operations type activities to also um you know a lot of the focus was on uh technology it's sort of an easy solution for companies to say hey um i need a i just need to upgrade my my software or i need a new system to do this or that um but i think as as most of your listeners probably know that that's never the the only way to improve operations you can't just slap in a new program and have it um have it fix everything. Um, traditionally you have to do a lot of work around, um, reorganizing processes and making them more streamlined. And then also, um, finding out if you have the right personnel and the right, you know, um, team behind implementing any of the new processes and, and programs. So, um, the work that I did was was really focused around um, finding ways to to implement um, the things that we also recommend. Was it? Uh, we're probably getting a little ahead, so I don't want to go too deep, deep too deeply into this. But just kind of can't quite tell if you enjoyed doing that or not. I did actually. I, I enjoyed it quite a bit, um, uh, primarily because of the. Um, the fact that it was, it changed frequently. Like the, the projects that I worked on were never very long-term. They were always sort of short, quick strike kind of surgical um, projects. So I was really fortunate in that regard to not, you know, sometimes people think of consulting gigs as being like long-term one or two year yeah. um, implementations of, you know, ERP or enter- enterprise software. Um, I was really lucky to sort of be able to, isolate myself away from that kind of work. So my projects typically range from like, you know, a couple of weeks to six months maybe in, on, on the long end. So I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was really neat to get, you know, behind the walls of some of these really big companies and see how they worked. So I learned a lot during that process and I, I actually, I did enjoy it until, um, until it sort of got, old but i we could probably talk about that a little bit well, you know that's, that's a, a kind of a bummer i guess because no matter what you do um i i guess it kind of depends if you find your bliss um uh, a gentleman that runs an awesome company chuck longenecker told me this on a different uh, podcast i uh 
host it called the industry. He was on that show and he said, you know, if you're following your bliss, if you're doing your bliss, you know, work is always, uh, is never, is never work. It's always fun. But I, I mean, I kind of believe that in some cases, but in practice has never been, I guess in theory, it's, it's always, you know, you expect that maybe that might happen. But for me, my experience has never been that case. Something always gets a little old, you know, even, uh, there, there's Toby again. He's making his second cameo. <laughs> we must have somebody come to the door. Um, but for me, my wife is not here. She just left. Otherwise, she'd save me right now. But uh, yeah, n- nonetheless, let's 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 go back to you, um, Robert. You got you mentioned um, you'd mentioned kind of like your roots, where you came from. You mentioned Cornell, which is an awesome school in New York. Uh, you went there for hospitality, hospitality management. But, uh, you know, I think what I love most about this show, and we, we kind of had a chat before this show kind of to do a little preparation, but what is it that, where, are we, where do we go back to in, in your past that kind of begins some of the love you might have had or some of the love you have for entrepreneurship or product development that got you to where you're at today? Where do we start with that? Um, we have to go back pretty far, actually. I, uh, I grew up in an entrepreneurial uh, family. Um, my father ran a, uh, a PC wholesale, uh, computing and distribution company, um, in Houston, actually, uh, back in the, uh, early eighties, all the way through most of the nineties. And so my, when he was starting that business, I was kind of always exposed to, to that. But the earliest point that I can remember of having sort of dreams of being an entrepreneur, is, I, I must've been, seven or eight, I think just thinking, you know, when folks ask you, what do you want to be when you grow up? I always said businessman and probably influenced a little bit by, by my father. Um, but the, the story that I can remember my first experience with entrepreneurship goes back to the holiday season sometime in the early eighties. I must've been seven or eight, but I, I actually, my, my, somehow my parents gave me the idea to sell, um, you know, these six outlet kind of power strips door to door up and down my block for um, folks that might want to string up Christmas lights or, or, or whatnot. They, they happened to be selling them in their business. And they said, you know, here's something to, to help you uh, occupy your time. So it was, it was kind of the first thing that I remember. I sold four of them. Um, to two people, actually, one one lady bought three of them at uh, twenty dollars a piece, and um, she had the the most Christmas lights in her house that I've ever seen. Um, so it was useful. So she to needed her. them pretty bad. She needed them, yeah. So I, I I was very fortunate to find the right customer at the right time and have the right product for them um, for her. So was this like R and D, or was this like? Uh door-to-door sales where you were you scouting things out and like ah they got uh, a lot of christmas lights out. i should probably ask them they probably have a need for these things it was door i had no idea what i was doing it was door-to-door I, I had um a little backpack full of these little boxes um and i just rang the doorbell and said hey would you be interested in this um i don't even remember really what my pitch was <laughs> so i just I, I, I got lucky that uh that this um, particular uh, nice lady needed um, n- needed it for her um, for her house. That, but that's the earliest thing I can remember. Did you ever actually. ask your parents why they did that, or was it was it just to like maybe 
get you out of the house? What, what was, did you ever ask him what the reason was for that? I think, I mean, I, I didn't ask them specifically what the reason was, but I mean, I grew up in a, you know, a typical Asian family and I think that's kind of their way of saying, you know, oh, you need to be industrious. Like not only do you, you know, you get to um, pay attention in school and whatnot, but you know, the, the way to really, to make it is to, you know, find a way to start your own business. My parents never really pressured me to follow a, a particular profession a doctor or a lawyer or anything like that. So I was lucky in that regard. Um, and I was a, a decent kid who they never really had to get, get on to, to pay attention in school or anything like that. But I think it was their way of kind of saying, Hey, you know, go try to do something and figure it out. So um, I, I guess, uh, maybe I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but I'm kind of curious, what are you looking back on that now? Cause I, to me, I mean, it sounds like you're probably around the same age as me. I'm going to guess you're probably around 34, 36. Yep, yeah. Right in there. Right in there. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm 34, I just turned 34 this past March. Um, and, and, uh, wait, what, at least what I found out a couple of years ago, um, what I found out just by doing some different studying the brain, because I, you know, for a full time position, I don't, you know, you might not believe this, but I don't podcast for a living. I just kind of do it for fun. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, in my full time position, I've, I've, uh, you know, I've done everything from, you know, design to product development, to, uh, you know, interface development, you know, all all these different things, and across that spectrum of things you know, of, of the web technologies and just building things in general, you want to learn about, you know, people's psyche, the mind, you know, so it's about psychology. And I try to inject psychology into, um, you know, into my design process so that I can think about what the user and try to do as, as best I can to anticipate things. But, um, I learned that I started to get, you know, far more introspective, you know, a couple of years ago and I found out why. And the reason why was because at the age of 30 for men, our brains begin to develop differently and they start to change and we start to become far more introspective about who we are and why we are. So I guess that's a long way of asking you, um, you know, when you look back on that moment now, you know, even like just this very moment, if you think back on that, that time frame, what do you think you learned from like that kind of process and that kind of exposure that your parents kind of helped you? push you into that, that, uh, that direction. Yeah. I, I mean, I think you're totally right. Like when, you know, I've, I've been doing a lot of that kind of, you know, soul searching to figure out what, what I'm going, you know, what was I going to do with the rest of my career? And, you know, I think you're right about the brain being wired a certain way. As I'm, you know, I've always kind of thought about, you know, how things can be better. Like even if, you know, uh, from, a uh, my consulting career all the way through to this Kickstarter project and now capsule and the minimalist, um, you know, taking products or things that I encounter on a day-to-day basis and saying, Oh, you know, I wish this would do this, this way or this better. This thing is pretty good, but only if it did this, it would be even better. So I think from the, the, the mindset of, you know, that particular experience, the, the one thing that I did learn was, is, is, and you kind of touched on it is, is how, how people react to you presenting them with something that may or may not be uh, a challenge for them. Right. So, you know, door to door, like uh, people are kind of used to you wanting to sell them maybe chocolate or cookies or (laughs) whatnot, but it was a little bit unusual. And I, 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 you know, I, um, now that I think about it, I I always get a, a, 
a nice laugh out of because I think it would just be really odd to have this little boy come to your door uh, not selling you lemonade, not selling you cookies, not selling you something for his baseball team, but just saying, hey, um, I want to sell you some electrical um, maintenance device for your home. Um, I think it probably took some people by surprise, but it was a great experience for me. You know, I, I, I think naturally I um, enjoy challenges like that. And, and that trickled over into things that um, were more traditional type fundraising efforts that I think also kind of mapped into this idea of like wanting to uh, succeed on my own. So whenever we had anything like a book challenge or selling a, candies uh, um, or cookies or gift wrapping paper door to door. I always tried to do as best as I could to raise however much money or gain or however many points for whatever prizes they had um, through the school. So I think in deep, deep rooted, it did kind of play a, a big part in, in, in what I'm doing now. Especially the, I mean, the cold calling piece of that, um, I guess maybe for those who are listening that may have never done anything door to door, maybe your stories like Roberts, where you did some sort of uh, you know remarkable sales tactics to your neighbors, uh, pushed by your parents uh, to do that. But you know, for me, um, I kind of have a little bit of experience when it comes to that. Um, mm-hmm. I spent some time as an account executive, um, actually in Florida, in Central Florida. Uh, I used to live in Orlando, and I work for the I work for this company called Muzak. And if you go to M-U-Z-A-K, uh, com, that's the company. And it's it's known to be the elevator music company, right? The candy music company. But right. it was one of the coolest, most educational uh, jobs. I mean, you know, if you ask me the question I ask you, that's that's where things somewhat began for me in uh, in my entrepreneurship because I, uh, you know, I went door to door. And there's so much uh, mental fear you know, you, you question everything about yourself. You know, do I look nice enough? Can I smile well enough? Does my breath not sm- I mean, you question everything. And there's so much fear walking into the door because you're, you're not really sure sometimes what you're going to see on the other side, you know. Mm-hmm. You might walk into a dentist's office, or in, or in your case, you might walk into your neighbor's house and knock on the door, and you might just be greeted with something that uh, kids shouldn't see or something. Who knows? But, you know, you mm-hmm. just never know. There's so much fear walking into that so but uh yeah i think go ahead yeah i was saying i think that's that's a really kind of common thing that uh um that you touched on there is this kind of uncertainty of like are you fully prepared for the situation like what are other people going to think and i think that's healthy to have like that mentality especially if that's if you're if you're going to be successful at it if you some people have kind of this um really stubborn, like I can do anything, no matter what I'll sell and pitch and I'll just, I can, you know, get through it. But I I think for me, it's more healthy to always be considering like, what, what am I not doing or that I should be doing, or am I doing this right to make sure that, um, you do connect properly when you do, the door does open, you'll be able to react to any situation. You don't have only one, one course of action or one plan of action that you're, you're going to act upon. Yeah. But you, you're constantly evaluating and surveying and making sure that uh, you have more options available to you. So I think that's that's pretty consistent from how I viewed that whole experience and even now. 
So this is holidays in the 80s. You're roughly seven or eight. Um, it had to be the late 80s because if we're the, in the same age bracket, this had to be like 88, yeah. 89 time frame. 87, 89, somewhere in that range, right? I, I Probably because I was still in the older neighborhood. So mid, mid-80s, yeah. So that's like just after E.T., basically. <laughs> yeah. For those of you who are listening that do not know what E.T. is, go to Wikipedia. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> um, not making fun of the youngsters. Just listen to the show. I just think it's, you know, that's another thing, I guess, to maybe explain why I say something like that is that I'm not old and you're not old, but we're also not young either. And it's kind of right. it's kind of neat when you get to this age that you can look back to a time when it was when it was a long, long ago. Right. When you're younger in your 20s. Long ago was still just teens for you, so it wasn't like super long ago. But there's a yeah. generation that I've been through and have been a part of, and I can get jokes that comedians tell that you know the younger generation doesn't even get because they just weren't around for it. So it's kind of weird when you look at retrospectiveness to to think about that. But uh, yeah, I think every era, <laughs> they, you know, the folks think that they lived in an exciting era. But I think in particular, we, I mean, we grew up in this era, this technology age oh, yeah. where. I mean, the first computers came out yep. and then the internet and like, yeah, kids nowadays, they have everything at their disposal on a, on a, um, you know, an iPhone. And, you know, when we were in college, we just got, um, basic email clients, you know? So I think it's, it's pretty neat. Things have really, really changed a lot in the last, you know, you know, a couple of decades. That's kind of crazy to think about that. So, I mean... Uh, so, you know, when we tar- start moving through time, what's the next spot for you? So door-to-door sales for you when you were a kid, selling uh, selling surge protectors to uh, to your neighbors. What was next? I think from the, you know, I'm thinking from an entrepreneurial perspective. I, you, know, I, you know, I never really was like, you know, I knew I wanted to own my own business, but I, I never was like, I didn't have any kind of, you know, real childhood successes in that regard. Like I didn't write any code or anything, but you know, I was always around it with my parents and, um, and when they were, uh, you know, my, my dad actually, the reason why he got into the computing business is because he was laid off. He worked for an oil company as an engineer designing drill bits, um, down in Houston. And for some reason that, you know, um, he was, um, let go and decided that he didn't want to go try to find another job, but he decided to start his own business too. Um, and computers are really kind of becoming um, uh, popular that, at that time. And so my, I, the, the most entrepreneurial experiences I had were always related to that business. Like I was always just an extra worker in my dad's company. Like I would, you know, help do inventory or stock product or even assemble computers um, at a pretty young age and then even um, do deliveries all the way through to the, you know, uh, return and warranty process. So I had pretty good visibility into how the whole, the whole company worked. And of course, when you're a kid though, you're like, Oh God, this right. is, yeah, this is a job. Like, I, you know, I'd much <laughs> prefer, um, you know, to be outside doing something else than doing that. But, um, I was actually really thankful to have had that experience because it gave me a sense as to what, what it took, you know, like when you're at that age, you don't realize the amount of hard work um, you know, my parents, I, the only thing that I noticed was that my parents were always working and that they weren't, um, you know, they weren't like a nine to five kind of 
job environment. So they were always talking business or working and thinking about, you know, what's the next deal or what were they going to do to um, make, make things happen for the business. So I think just by virtue of being around that, that um, I picked up a lot of things sort of subconsciously. Yeah. I'm kind of curious though, if, um, if being exposed to, I guess that level of, business intelligence so to speak at that young of an age if it uh if it gave you a different appreciation for what your parents did for you say for example when it came time for holidays or birthdays or gifts or presents so to speak you know were you more appreciative because you understood how hard they worked for things or were you just was it uh was there you know were you still like maybe some other kids other words like come on man you didn't give me the best bike what's why, why not no i mean i think when when you're a kid you don't you don't realize any of that. You you revolve and live only in your own world, you know. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's kind of the um, a funny thing where you're thinking. Well, hold on one second. Sorry, my my headphones going kind of weird there. Um, you you don't have any idea what your parents are going through. You only care about what's happening in school. So it's not until much, much later now that I'm going through this process on my, um, for myself that I'm like, wow, they, it, you know, you, you really respect it so much more yeah. and you appreciate it so much more after the fact when it's happening, it was like, it's like a lot of folks like you, I, I was around it so frequently that I never wanted to actually be, a, um, you know, I, I almost got to the point where I did not like computers because it was so much a part of like my childhood. And I, so I never, I never really fully appreciated the opportunity that was there for me. But if I, if I was, you know, one of my bigger regrets is if I was really um, a really true entrepreneur at heart at that time, like I, and I was, you know, a boy genius or whatnot, I probably could have helped my dad build a business. Um, because I mean, we, they were all happening around the same time, and there's no reason why, you know, the uh, you know uh, a compact got so much further ahead and grew to be this large multinational that that you know my parents they started out at the same spot. So I guess it depends. Everybody's everybody's track is a little bit different based on their mentality. Yeah. Of course, I'm not saying that I could have replicated that by any means, but I I, I feel a certain sense of regret that I didn't wasn't more actively participating in, in helping things because I was aware of things like the internet and, and, and whatnot, but I, I just, that was the family business and I didn't want to get into it. You know, that's a, so. that's a good reflection though. Cause I think that's definitely a good lesson for someone younger listening to this show or potentially listening to the show that maybe they're in the, in the same situation. And, you know, when they hear you say something like that, like you, there's a level of regret you have uh, now in your life not having, uh, you know, taken that opportunity to do something. But at the same time, you know, when you're, uh, when you're in that stage of life, man, I can remember making decisions and I look back on twists I made and I'm like, you're an idiot. You know, <laughs> what were you thinking? How, how would that make any sense? Right. I mean, your brain is so different. Your mind is so different. Your goals are significantly different. And that's what life teaches you. Um, is this that that experience of, you know, what your past can do for you and, and what's changed? Um, yeah, that's that's kind of wild though. But let's let's maybe talk about your your first starts. Then you know what what uh, 
maybe what was your first business idea opportunity that you that you tried to execute? Sure. So, I mean, I, you know, I was in, in preparation for this. I was really kind of reflecting back on my um, my life and figuring out, you know, what are kind of the things that you know related to being a founder or an entrepreneur. And I actually um, have had a lot of false starts sort of later on. Like I always, I always had ideas for for starting and building new products, but I think the the earlier successes that I had actually were more related to things that I was involved in with school, um, because it's uh, I, I was pretty active in extracurricular activities growing up um, in both high school and college, and so there were a lot of actually opportunities to introduce products for fundraising um, for for school and for for activities for the for the membership so um, if I'm thinking about it those are kind of like my earliest um, like successes dealing with with selling products if we made t-shirts and, and had to sell t-shirts to raise funds to go on a um, a trip or participate in a certain activity uh, I think that's where I I can remember um, you know making uh, either t-shirts or putting on events like a, like a car wash and being pretty successful at, at doing that and, and, and realizing at an early on, realizing early on that I had a knack for sign of sort of envisioning and coming up with ideas for how to do things and then finding a way to execute them. Um, so, uh, the, the things that I'm probably more, um, proud of are, are um, uh, the things that we did in college when I was participating. And uh, uh, there was a campus organization at Cornell called the Chinese Students Association. And ultimately, I, I was involved pretty heavily, but ultimately we did some pretty cool things where we put on a cultural show for, initially it was uh, uh, for just the, the university, but ultimately it became for the entire community there in, in the college town of Ithaca. But we had a... Um, we picked up a legacy of the show where there probably had 400 or so people in the audience. And we actually um, were able to increase that um, the year that I was participating to uh, almost 1,500 people, I think. So like three, three and a half fold kind of increase. And, and um, how we did that was by bringing in some larger acts and renting in talent and from um, New York City and and building that. So we we basically did um, uh, a huge uh, uh, turnout for for a show that traditionally did not have that. So, um, based on some of the things that I helped incorporate, but the school the the schooling that I got at uh, Cornell was, was really great for developing entrepreneurs. I mean, I took entrepreneur classes, but the hotel school is really focused on kind of the service industry. And there's a class that I took, um, it was a restaurant management class. And one of the, one of the projects is that you have to fully concept out a restaurant idea, uh, and then execute it with your classmates. They would, you know, work the front of house staff or whatever, and you would, you would come up with the menu, what they wore, um, how to decorate the the restaurant, and then on one 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 night throughout the um, the course of the semester, you would basically be the restaurant owner. Wow! Um, so it's a really really cool way of of getting some kind of low risk entrepreneurial experience. And my concept was for a 
I had two other people on the team, um, but we we came up with a, a basically a a, a Japanese fusion kind of um, night market themed quick service restaurant, and we actually had the most uh, the most covers ever um, up until that point that the that the class had done. We we turned like three hundred seventy five um, covers, I think, when most people do like one table sitting you know, 80 to maybe 150 or so. So those, those kinds of things have all like kind of played into, um, you know, my experience in terms of like, or the successes that I think I had early on from an entrepreneur's um, perspective. I, I don't have like the traditional, like I've, you know, a serial entrepreneur kind of thing where I started um, tons of successful businesses, but those are the little things that I think I, I think about when I'm like, Oh, you know, that, that kind of keyed me into, where I am today and thinking about how, what worked then on, on those types of projects. I'm trying to, I'm trying to tie in like maybe what your next, what your next stint is here, because you were, you're coming from, from college. So you, you, you kind of mentioned a couple of different cities there, Houston, you grew up in Houston, you went to college in, in, uh, in New York, Ithaca, which is, uh, it's, pretty northern new york it's it's yeah, way upstate yeah. yeah so it's upstate new york and then now you're in la so you're kind mm. of what what took you from new york out to la well I, I you know growing up in texas and then having experienced the cold of um new york for four years i really wanted to try and get to a climate where a little bit more desirable so i was always looking for the west coast um just to see you know, I'm a big fan of trying new things and being in new environments. So an opportunity came up to join um, the consulting practice at um, at Arthur Anderson for the, the hospitality um, group there. And I, I took it. Actually, my originally I'd gotten the offer for New York City, and then I worked with them to kind of swap. Another guy who had also gotten an offer for the L.A. practice um, was actually wanted to be in New York because yeah. that's where his family was. So we were lucky and we just basically swapped, um, swapped, uh, offers. Um, and that's how I got out here on the West coast, um, doing consulting work. And so you were not long ago, you were on quit, right? You were on the most recent episode, uh, with Dan or the most recent show, but you were also on a show, I think a couple weeks back and Dan had you call in specifically to talk about, minimalist and uh, your start there. So I, I kind of caught a little bit of that. And for those listening that have listened to that show, or maybe for the, actually for those who didn't listen to that show, um, can we, can we camp out in the, in the zone of what was going on in life, I guess, around the time, whenever you, you had this idea for minimalist, what was it that, that kind of started you down this road? Sure. I mean, I, I'll give a little bit of a back history too, because I, you know, I've, um, the, the minimalist itself came about, um, many, many years ago. And I've always like, since I left school, even while I was in school, just was always tinkering. I'm, um, you know, and I'm a tinkerer and like, I try to fix things and make things better as I kind of mentioned earlier. Right. And so I'd come up with a lot of ideas for products and actually made a lot of prototypes for things and was always using them myself and said, Oh, this is so much better. Um, you know, one example of that is a, um, at a notebook, a spiral notebook where you could remove the pages and put them back in. But I, I like designed and laid out the grid for how I would want to like keep notes in certain sections and have, 
you know, your, your to-do list and then like your um, follow-up section. So I was always tinkering with things like that. Um, I actually applied for a, uh, a patent for a, um, a, a towel that had zippered pockets in it so that you could, you know, take your gym ID and maybe throw your key or cell phone into it and then not have it be loose, like in your pockets while you're working out. Um, so I, but none of those products actually ever really came to fruition. So I just, for some reason or another, just didn't have enough of the kind of gumption or, or to release it to the world thinking that they weren't great ideas. And then lo and behold, a few years later, these ideas all became, you know, I wouldn't say popular, but somebody somewhere else was doing them. So, you know, I would be in a container store and I saw a towel with zippers in it or, um, you know, these notebooks were like, you know, that was before moleskin was kind of reinvigorated and everybody has moleskin notebooks. Like, you know, you can, you can introduce a product to a market and and make it successful. Um, but the one that kind of really got to me, um, too, actually is, uh, you know, uh, one was an idea for having kind of protection for cell phones. And at that time, the cell phones were all like plastic cases, flip phones and things like that. And I was like, oh, it'd be really cool to have kind of custom cases that would fit over these things where you could change the colors and all that. And then two or three years later, it became huge, a huge industry, you know, for people to, to buy and sell cases for customizing their phones. So these things just over time were like building up and building up and saying, you know, wow, like, I, you know, I, I know it's kind of tried to say, oh, I had an idea to do that. And, but because you didn't do anything, it really didn't mean anything. Um, but I had these wallet ideas that I was been tinkering around with. And I said, you know, um, I, uh, I was introducing to my friends and they said, this is really, really great. I really like, you know, you wouldn't expect that you could hold the cash this way and have it not, um, fall out but um they're like you should get these made somewhere i had one friend who had just started her own jewelry line and she's like you know you could totally get this made and i know i know you'll be able to sell these so that kind of pushed me over the top and she's like get it done she's like just do it if you don't if you don't try you you will never know um unfortunately kickstarter was coming around and kind of becoming more popular and i saw a couple of ideas for wallets on um, that were pretty successful on there. And I said, wow, you know, these, these ideas are pretty good, but I still would not use those myself. So I said, there's got to be at least some portion of the population that would be interested in having this, um, this leather wallet that I designed. So I started working towards putting it up there. Um, and that's how the, that's how the whole Kickstarter thing got started. But I think you might be also asking about, um, um, my actual story of like how I got tired of consulting and, and, and quit and what I talked about with Dan, yeah, your quit story. Yeah. On the, on the quit story. I love so. that podcast, by the way. I mean, I love that show that Dan does. I love just the idea of, of like, that's part of the beauty of what I like about this show. Like this show is about, you know, the whys and the hows and the, as you look back and that kind of thing. Um, and then for Dan's show, you know, what was the moment like you were fed up, right? Like the, the, the band got snapped and you were done, right? The corporate stew's yeah. job was gone and the future was, you know, you know, you were, you were resisting the man, so to speak. I love that show. Yeah. It was, it was really hard for me actually, because 
you know, I, um, I had always treated my consulting career as kind of like a real life MBA. Like I was getting to work behind the walls of these really, really big companies doing pretty cool, um, projects that most people would not have exposure to and seeing how things worked in that regard. But the problem was sprinkled throughout that I was doing some really, really mundane, like menial kind of projects that had really no value that I could see. I mean, they had some immediate value to that particular client, but it wasn't enriching me or like I wasn't getting any more experience out of it. So I was really sort of getting tired of doing that. And, and the, 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 the more that I was doing those projects, it seemed like the more that people wanted me to do those projects. Um, uh, eventually at the very end, I was doing a lot of like kind of computer forensic work, like investigative things were like, we were going in and taking people's hard drives out and, and forensically imaging them to do, um, investigations on them for, litigative purposes and i was just like wow i really have zero to no interest doing this there are a lot of people that can do this and a lot of people that can do this better than me um so i was starting to make the transition in my mind saying oh i need to i need to find something new um but the the challenge was always like the security of having that regular steady paycheck and and for me like i didn't i always was saying that i would never go work in like, um, in a regular operations job because of the flexibility I had from consulting where it was like dynamic and every three months or every week, I I didn't know what my next project necessarily would be. And I wasn't sure I could go to a regular nine to five and sit behind a desk all day long. So I like, if you, if you cut out that portion of the the job market, you don't leave yourself with a whole lot of choice and option. Um, and so, we were we were expecting a, a kid um, at the end of the year, um, and then uh, our business, our office was actually moving and transitioning. So things kind of it was kind of like a perfect storm for me of things that happened. But ultimately, what happened was they they decided to dissolve our group in um, about at the in September of 2012. They said, "Oh, we're gonna we're just gonna shut your group down. We don't. Um, we're gonna give you a package and." and kind of send all you folks on your way. Um, and we're going to move to a new office space and not have this practice be operating out of the, the West coast anymore. Right. And I said, Oh, well, it was, for me, it was a great relief. I was like, Oh, this is actually a pretty good deal. If I'm going to get, you know, severance and everything, um, and also coverage. But the only thing was that my coverage was going to end about a month before my wife was due to deliver. And it's like, well, that's not great. Um, but that that kind of taught me a lesson too, because I something that I thought was really secure and stable actually ended up not being anything yeah. like that. So, um, fortunately, I you know kind of was um, thinking about making the the, the leap, and um, you know with the severance and with a little bit of savings, was able to kind of buy myself some time to kind of do something. And with the pending del- you know arrival of my um, my son, I was like, you know, if I don't do something now, like to follow my entrepreneurial dreams, like I, I most likely never will. I mean, I've been talking about it for a decade and having all these false starts and trying to build new products and never really finding success and saying, you know, um, you know, Dan always talks about this is like, you can't do two things. Well, you got to focus one or the other. Mm -hmm. So it's really hard to be good at your job. And then also, um, be starting your company on the side. 
And I, I was a little more extreme. It was like, I almost could not, because I was on almost 24 seven for my consulting gig to be able to focus enough effort to actually just get things jump started. So I said, okay, I'm going to, I'm just going to, I'll quit. And then I'll, and then I'll start, um, I'll start making inroads into building my own business. So maybe you can re- re- rewind this a little bit. Um, because, and we talked a little bit about false starts and maybe even the word failure, if that's a, if that's an okay word for you, but you'd mentioned you're a tinkerer, you had some other product ideas. What other product ideas did you try that failed? Um, yeah, I'm absolutely a tinkerer. Like, um, the, well, I talked a little bit about this notebook idea. I talked a little bit about, um, the towels that I was, um, that I was actually, I taught myself to stow and I was putting zippers and pockets into these things and then trying to apply for a patent. Um, another idea that I had and was working on actually, that is the kind of the precursor to this capsule is that I'd, I'd found these, these bags. Like I've always been sort of a big, um, nerd when it comes to cool, cool bags. And, um, I guess they call it carry gear now. Um, but, Back, I mean, like, back uh, the- like on, uh, um, what's that movie? Geez, I can't remember. Hangover when he's like at the satchel. Yeah, exactly. So like those so things. Messenger bags, <laughs> laptop bags, backpacks, and um, you know, in the in the early two thousands, like before, like you know, companies like eBags were around. Um, you couldn't get really really cool bags, but a lot of companies were making these really awesome bags, like snowboard companies, like you know, Burton. They were crafting really, really cool technical bags that you couldn't buy anywhere. You couldn't touch them. You couldn't feel them. Um, you, you just had to get them online or like the store that sold it. You'd have to contact a store like on the East Coast to the ski resort to sell you something. So I was like, wow, you know, if I could do something to make these things available, um, that'd be really cool. So I was working on a retail concept. Um, got all the way to the point where I was going to sign a lease to actually have a store in the Beverly Center to sell these um, bags and backpacks and started negotiating agreements. Um, and the, the store concept was that it was, we were actually going to be called Capsule. Um, and the Capsule actually is, is an acronym for uh, carry all products supporting urban lifestyles everywhere, which um, not many people know that. But That's pretty neat. I, I, didn't, know, I didn't know that either, but... Uh... That's your company name now, Capsule, just in case. Yeah, that is their company name now, and it's evolved a little bit. But the general idea was that, you know, capsules, like they, you know, they they encapsulate things. So you could, you know, carry things in in capsules. Um, But, you know, when it came time to do it and like and you had to put pen to paper and really kind of, um, you know, take the leap, I, I, I for one reason or another, I just couldn't put the amount of investment that it would really take to to build out a retail environment and invest all that money for something that I was just, so what year was that? Just kind of curious. Sure. I think that was like Oh four Oh five. Um, of 2000. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I, there was a cool bag company that I was dealing with, um, called Bobble Bee. It's a Swedish company. They make these hard shell backpacks that you see in action movies all the time. But I was like, oh, these are really great. This is going to be really cool. They don't sell these in the U.S., and I think they'll be really, really popular. Of course, they were somewhat popular, but not nearly popular enough. 
And so I'm actually really fortunate that we didn't make a heavy investment to start, you know, buying inventory for that particular product to bring them over. But that was sort of like the closest that I got to really, really starting uh, my own thing. And then the, you know, the six figure investment that it would have required just, uh, I felt like I, I was felt so unsure about whether or not it would be a success that I, that I, um, that I didn't pull the trigger. Um, what was it that gave you that feeling? Was it, uh, fear, your own fear? Do you think it was real or do you think it was fake? You think you made it up just so you can back out? I, I think, I think it was a little bit of both. I mean, it's just, just general uncertainty because nobody else had done it. I mean, there were like luggage stores and things like that, but nobody did a specialty like backpack messenger bag laptop store in that regard without selling their own product. So, um, you know, I'd done all the legwork and I just, you know, I can't really tell you the exact reason for why it didn't happen, but I think, you know, fear of, of, of failure actually probably had a lot to do. And when I look back on it now, I say, wow, you know, I probably, if I would have done it, I would have made some sort of success out of it. Um, I don't think it would have been a complete failure, but at that time, um, in my life with the, the financial commitment that would have been made, um, I always, you know, I never wanted to get outside investment for any of the businesses that I worked on just because I felt like I wanted to do something from the ground up on my own and not have to worry about or listen to other people tell me what to do. Um, to me, the one of the greatest benefits of running your own business is that you get to make the final decisions on everything. And I felt like if I gave up some portion or piece of that, yeah. um, I'd be sacrificing a lot. So a lot of the decisions that I made were a result of having that particular, um, that particular, um, uh, restriction. So the Kickstarter thing was, you know, like when I started that, it's like, okay, well let's, you know, let's go with the complete opposite. Instead of spending six figures, let's see if I can spend less than a hundred dollars and start something from nothing. Just see if that's possible. Um, you know, um, I actually was, a pretty big fan of, you know, this whole Texas Hold'em phenomenon for a while. And there was a, um, a guy, Chris Ferguson, who, who was playing online and said, you know, how can I make $10,000 from a dollar? And so he, he was able to do it. Of course, he's a professional poker player and whatnot, but I had always had this idea is like, wow, like, I think those kinds of stories are really amazing. Like you really did start from nothing. And I think Kickstarter, made it completely possible to do that and like you the 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 model that they have is completely democratized this whole project development process where you don't have to put in a single dime beforehand and the people that are going to contribute or pre-order or, or back your project don't have to worry about losing out if your project doesn't fund you know so the, there's like almost no risk for anybody except for the risk of like you know you know, embarrassment of, of maybe not, not funding or something like that. Um, so I said, let's, let's do that. And that's kind of the road that we're, we're on now. And so you launched the project in, in October of last year, right? Right. That's the time frame. So how much time, I guess we're kind of getting to the meat, maybe even the, maybe the climactic moment of the, of the show where we're talking about, you know, we talked a lot about uh, where you came from, um, you know, a lot of the things that you've done in your life that have gotten you to the road you've taken in life. And, um, 
getting the courage, I guess, to, to say, forget the fear or finding a way to remove the fear or go around the fear to actually establish yourself and, and put yourself out there far enough to, to get a snag. So how much time before this, you know, had you heard about Kickstarter or how much time before the launch of it did you have to prepare? And did you have any consulting? Was this all your own? Like, what did you do to prepare for this? Sure. Well, I mean, I had known about Kickstarter since 2010, probably, um, you know, they were still really, really early on. I said, oh, this is a pretty neat idea. And, you know, I was somewhat skeptical about, you know, what what you could do or get out of it. But I thought it was a a neat, really neat concept. Um, But in terms of where I was, um, and, you know, if you want the, like, real quit story, um, you can listen to the, the, the quit show podcast with Dan from a couple episodes ago, but basically I, they, they, um, they let me go on a Thursday and then came back to me on a Monday and said, can you forget about this? Like pretend like it never happened. We don't want to actually let you go. We need you for this big project. Um, long story short, a long short, a long story short, I, I decided to stay on so I could extend benefits and work this project for them. But so I actually did finally end up leaving my consulting role, um, at the end of 2012, my son was born in January um, of the new year, and so we had a little bit of time off to really kind of focus on that. That which was, was I found to be one of the most awesome times of my life. And then, then that's when I really started kicking in. Like once we got to the routine of things, I said okay, so let's let's get to let's get to starting this business we've always talked about. Um, and at the time, I was actually working on two different ideas. One is for a uh, fitness products company um, with a couple of buddies of mine, and then this this wallet idea for um, that we launched on Kickstarter. Um, but I I had uh, once it's once I made the decision to actually do it, I, and then was able to get in contact with some potential manufacturers and do the research that I needed to say, okay, I actually think I can, um, you know, deliver on on what I say I'm going to deliver on to with, to a reasonable degree of certainty. I kicked it off um, in um, in the beginning of October, and my whole thing was that I had to make sure that I delivered by the time Christmas came around because this particular product I felt was really really good for gift giving season because of you know the price point and and the, at least the the finishing that I knew that I wanted to get to in terms of the quality it was like um, it wasn't going to be a kind of throwaway first trial type of thing. Um, I really wanted to be as polished as I could make it. And so all the once I knew that I wanted to hit that timeline, it was things were getting pretty short in terms of, you know, how quickly we could start um, doing. I just I had the final goal in mind of delivering for Christmas, and then everything kind of backed into that. It's kind of like um, my background's in project management, so I, I I kind of knew how to forecast out what we were going to do, and how much time I needed for each thing with a, a you know a reasonable amount of buffer. And that ultimately be, you know, things had to go pretty smoothly um, without too many hiccups um, in order for us to deliver on time. And fortunately, we were able to to do that. Um, but in terms of help for my Kickstarter project, I got a lot of help actually from um, friends, but mostly from family. My um, my immediate family, my wife, uh, my brother, my brother-in-law were all very, very critical components to um, getting the... Um, getting the project launched on Kickstarter. I'm a pretty good idea guy, but they're, they, my immediate family is all really, really good at like 
marketing and writing, which is not my, my forte. So it was nice to have their perspectives. One of them's in PR, one is in marketing. And my wife was previously in, in marketing research and marketing also. So they, they helped me position, I think, the product in a way that I think gave it the most chance for success. And I, I wouldn't have been able to do it without them, for sure. And I guess uh, maybe full disclosure, too, is that since what made me think about even mentioning it was that uh, was the Christmas uh, mention you did there. Because I actually got my minimalist as a gift from my wife for Christmas this most recent Christmas. So um, I was one of the ones that got, you know, delivery in December. But I can't remember when we when we backed it, but it was... I don't know if I don't know if you were funded or not yet, but um, I guess for those who might be catching up about this, um, the original pledged goal was six and a half or sixteen and a half thousand dollars, and you actually hit one hundred sixteen thousand uh, and eight hundred dollars. Basically, was uh, right. was what you actually hit, and I mean that's that's a significant overfund, and I, I guess this happens more often than not on Kickstarter. Some people gauge, uh, you know, what they need to put into it a little less or they're just, you know, a little unsure of the market maybe even. I mean, what do you think it was for you that uh, that led to, you know, what were the de- determining factors, I guess, in your preparation and planning? And you mentioned manufacturers and lining things up and making a polished product, but $16,500 was your, was your suggested pledge. Yeah, the you know, the, the Kickstarter, when you're, doing the the you know the funding level setting and figuring out what you think your project can reasonably do obviously do a lot of research and see yeah. like prior projects like what they do and there were you know two products in particular that you know both had reached the six figure mark you know not too long before i was like wow and then there was this third you're not talking product. about the slim wallet are you i'm talking about the slim wallet okay. and and um and there's another um, like metal RFID kind of um, wallet also, and I said, well, like both of those were not options that satisfied my particular um, need or wants. And then the the thing that kind of kicked me over the edge was some guy was was um, promoting a trifold wallet, which is kind of like in my mind the an archaic <laughs> kind of design for a wallet. Like if you're looking to go thin or minimal, like that's like the worst possible thing you can do is to like fold something multiple times. Like um, it just, it's like that newspaper trick. You can only right. fold it so many times. Um, and so I said, wow, this guy can raise, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. Then my, my idea has got to be at least as good as that. So that's when we we really made the move and pushed to to launch, and we we ultimately raised one hundred sixteen thousand dollars. But when I the, the the funny the funny story is that like once we really started going and once we got picked up steam, like I almost was like um, kind of letting off the throttle because I was afraid that we were going to exceed by too far of an amount that we could not actually produce enough product in time. Um, for the, the you know the folks that were expecting to use right. this as Christmas, yeah, yeah. And during that time, Kickstarter was getting a lot of flack for projects that were overpromising and underdelivering. So I was very paranoid about not having that be the case in my particular project. You know, like the the you know the Pebble and the the gaming consoles. None of those things had delivered, and they were way past their anticipated delivery time frame. Um, so I I actually 
did not get the opportunity even to email my close friends or my own personal like contact like network of you know mailing list because I was first of all that once you get funded it's I felt a little bit like it was going to be somewhat self-serving to say hey you know I'm working on this project I really don't need your funds because that you know that's the concept of Kickstarter is like you asking people to help right. you back the project and 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 then um you know but I'd like you I'd like you to still buy one like I felt a little awkward to 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 make that kind of statement it kind of gets back to the whole um door to door knocking on things like you know if I'm selling somebody a you know a power strip and, I, and you know I knock on the door open the door and they've got like it's like if they had a pile of power strips you know sitting by their christmas tree then I'd be like oh well thank you very much I'm not even going to pitch you you know right um but I was fortunate that you know we 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 did raise a good amount of money, and I felt very um, I felt relieved that some, this this idea that I had that you know like the other products, the false starts that I had was like a good idea in my mind, but never really certain if it would be a good idea in you know in somebody else's mind. Um, Kickstarter was amazing for for giving me that validation, saying yeah, other people believe in this idea and think it could work. Um, Enough, enough, so much that they would back it and put you know real dollars behind it and help you get it to the point where you could actually realize um, and bring bring the product to reality. So, well, here's maybe here's what's confusing me, and maybe you can shed some light on this. But uh, just a bit ago, we were talking about um, the the initial turn away, you know, the initial fear that you you backed down from because you were concerned about. Um, you know, stepping off the ledge, so to speak. And, you know, you mentioned something in the hundred grand mark to, to launch the retail outlet or the retail opportunity of, of the, um, I guess it was like a messenger bag type. I couldn't really gauge what you were, what, ex- what exactly, if it was, if it was that or not, but it was selling lots of different, bags, right. different types of hard to get bags. Right. Yeah. And so if, if you, um, I guess if you gauged a a good retail launch at a hundred thousand dollars there, what made what was it that made you think that sixteen and a half thousand was was going to be enough, or what were your expectations from that? I guess you know, I mean, you're about to click the launch project or you know submit this project to to Kickstarter to get approved, and you've got sixteen and a half thousand dollars listed as your as your desired pledge. You know, what were you expecting from that moment? Well, for for me, I mean, you know, I backed into the number, not just the actual cost to get the products manufactured with the appropriate packaging and delivering and customs. You know, I've done a lot of research for to try to get um, product made here in the U.S. Um, but even in L.A., I wasn't able, to, like, I just didn't have enough of a network to 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 be able to navigate and find resources to help me team up to do this and when i did the the cost was just really really prohibitive and i didn't want to ultimately sell the minimalist for two hundred dollars um like you see a lot of like you know high-end higher-end um stores sell like card cases from anywhere from like a hundred to two hundred dollars i wanted to keep the price point you know really accessible and things that people feel comfortable buying knowing that they get a good quality product um, the challenge when you're small is that you don't have the volume to do that. 
So my numbers were all based on, you know, minimum order quantities from the manufacturing partners that I was dealing with, tacking in some of the additional costs of, um, you know, getting it imported and shipping and, and packaging and, and potentially having a mistake or having an overrun and just kind of building that all into that number. And, and, and when you're doing Kickstarter, you know, actually the funding goal um, for your product is, is fairly important because if you ask for too much, people are hesitant because they think, oh, if I back this, they, they're never going to achieve. If I ask for $500,000, people would think I was crazy. But if I ask for $1,000, people are like, well, you can get $1,000 just asking a couple of your friends probably to chip in. So you have to have the right kind of target for your number. And then, and then once you click go, it's kind of – actually, it's a pretty nerve-wracking moment yeah. to, to put yourself out there. You get a chance um, to go back and rewind. Do you? you can't go back and change the pledge? Yeah, no, you can't change anything. Kickstarter locks down everything once once things get going. Um, and once people start backing your, your project, you can't reverse out or you can't change. So um, making sure you get it right from the outset is, is really, really important. How do, you, how do you feel about that process there? I want to ask you some more questions around some sure. other things, but how do you feel about that in particular? Um, the locking well, down, I, I mean. Well, I, I think... I think it's good. Like, you know, I had the chance to speak with the, one of the founders of Kickstarter in a recent meetup here in LA. And I think they've, they've implemented certain protocols that I think make sense and to protect accurately or adequately protect the, the backers. So if I, if I go out and say I have a pledge level for um, this particular um, product, but then later on I'm able to change it or I'm able to up the price or I'm able to reduce the features or add more features. Like I think that makes things um, a little bit too uncertain. And one of the things is, is people putting their money behind it. You, you, you can only provide a certain amount of reassurance anyways, because a lot of folks don't have necessarily, you know, a huge amount of experience doing whatever project they're promoting. So I think um, it makes, it definitely makes sense to do that to lock it down and, and just prevent things from changing on the fly. Cause people like the, the project creators are in Kickstarter all day long, night and day monitoring their project. But the average everyday backer is not doing that. They'll come, come to the project, click on the thing, yeah. um, pledge and then disappear. And then when it ships to their door, they're, you know, that's they're surprised. The next they're, <laughs> I yeah, know some people who back so many Kickstarters yeah. that they're uh, a good friend of mine, Jared, um, he he runs a uh, he, he does some stuff he he does he's one of the founders of this blog called the industry and he's done some other cool stuff out there but he he's such a uh, an angel i guess on kickstarter he's always backing stuff and he, he kind of jokes he's like oh i got a new something from kickstarter today it's it's kind of funny but i mean speaking of you know going away and coming back um until you know this very conversation i had forgotten how much we had paid for uh, my minimalist and we backed it at the $45 level where you had the initial, you know, 150 backers, 150 backers could, could back it at 40. So I guess I must've been just outside of that, you know, 150, mm -hmm. maybe to thousand range. Cause after the 150, I mean, cause everybody's going to buy the 40 first, right. And then they're going to go for the right. 45. I mean, you, you would just be silly to buy the 45 and not the 40. You would think, but there are people that just go and they're like, oh, I the $5, like either they're not sure how it works right. or they, you know, back. But yeah, you, you get, you find out so many different things about people and how they work and right. react on the internet and what they do. 
Um, it's kind of funny, actually. Can we um, can we talk a bit about? Um, I know we talked a little bit about the preparation um, here for this, but you know, some of your product videos and your positioning, you said that you can't take the credit for everything. So I, I remember watching the video and just you know seeing how many cards you were able to put in, how much cash, and how um, you know careful it seemed you were being about describing how much you can do and how much you could put into it before it would go beyond i was telling you before in our preamble our our personal chat before the show started you know one thing that got me to start uh you know even desiring the minimalist um was the fact that i got sick of my fat wallet um i don't know if you can use that in market or not but i just called it my fat (laughs) wallet i was just done with it right i'm i was done sitting on it i was done pulling it out and having way too much stuff in here. You know, it's just it became this place where I would just chuck stuff. Everything from cards I never used to like member cards. And I was just like it was just stupid. I hated it. I was like, why do I do this? And so I, yeah. I, I looked at it and I'm like, I need to minimize this thing. So I'm like, okay, what in here really matters? I pulled out one card, that was my uh Visa check card. I pulled out another thing and that was my driver's license. And I it's like, okay, none of this, nothing else in here matters to me anymore. So I took the fat wallet and I chucked it in the drawer and didn't look at it for a long time. And I just started carrying around these two cards. I didn't put, you know, I didn't do anything to try to hack it. I just literally carried two cards. And then, uh, and then one day my wife's like, Hey, I heard about this, uh, you know, like really minimal wallet on Kickstarter. You should check it out. And I looked at it. I'm like, Oh, that's kind of neat. And, uh, you know, and then I was surprised at Christmas. So that was nice, but uh, to rewind a little bit, I do remember going back and watching the videos on how you did some of these things. So what was it in terms of preparation for positioning? Because it's one thing to develop. It's one thing to have the skills you have to sew and design and create this thing, but actually to 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 do the, you know, I guess for lack of better terms, the infomercial-like um, selling points, you just seem to be, you know, on point with how to position it, how to show it off and – like everything just kind of aligned perfectly for you. Sure. Well, I mean, there are a couple of funny stories in there because the, you know, I had been playing around with prototypes for um, the minimalist for at least as long as when I was trying to start the bag company. And I had, you know, original versions in um, duct tape and then like, I like sewed um, things together and like using the, the, envelope mailer the Tyvek material that you get from the u.s post office like i tried rubber band like i tried a lot of different things because i always felt like the bifold wallets just naturally were way too thick yeah. for me. like that's what i got mm-hmm. i think it's a um i don't know if i could say this on the show sure i can it's my show uh it's a bifold fossil and i love fossil i mean they got mm-hmm. they make good stuff but right i think i had this thing for like six years uh and I think another reason why I wanted to get rid of it too was I think an ex girlfriend bought this for me. So you know, obviously I'm <laughs> I'm married now, so my wife yeah. didn't certainly appreciate me carrying around a fat wallet that came from somebody else. So I was right. done with it. Yeah, I mean, just if you think about it, like the the wallet kind of archetype has so just been needed around hacks. for so yeah. long. Yeah, it hasn't changed since for decades. I mean, I think the wallet. You know, I looked it up like originated somewhere in in um in britain you know in the 1300s or something I, I don't remember the exact year but um you know it didn't it hasn't changed like from the pocketbook to you know the wallets really, and and really like i always naturally carried fewer things because I, I didn't like the the bulge so to speak but having you know pockets 
I just didn't use. Like it was the wallet was way over engineered for what I needed to do. Yeah, totally. Um, for carrying. So ultimately, when we were, um, you know, I'd been testing this thing out. I was like, you know, I my consulting career kind of actually prepared me well for this because I was always taking sort of complex. I guess we would call them like rat nest type problems where like you have a lot of different things happening across the organization that are affecting why this particular process for this particular group was particularly painful. And I was trying to distill down that information into, you know, slides and and graphics that could be distilled up to management so that they could better understand what was going on. And so I think that had helped me actually in, in describing the, you know, the, the way that we wanted to describe the, the minimalist. Um, but the funny story is that I actually um, created another video prior to the, the donut video that you see on the Kickstarter campaign. And just because um, I was shooting everything myself and I had this idea of like, I'm not going to pay somebody $2,000 to shoot me a more professional looking commercial. It's like, you know, I think part of the, the natural beauty of Kickstarter is that you're, you know, people are, like you said, hacking things together. So I shot it myself, but it was horrendous. I mean, I was against, you know, a wall in my house and talking to a, you know, interviewing myself, talking to like a fake Gatorade bottle that I positioned <laughs> where I thought the interview were might be. That's so funny. And it, and it was so like, I showed it to my brother and, and he's um, like, no, don't do that. My wife. And they were like, Oh my God, please. No, don't do that. And we're getting pretty close to the the timing that I'd set myself for when I wanted to launch. And I was like, oh, no. So then I started, you know, I came up with this idea. It's like, you know, how do I how do I convince people that, you know, they um, that they need to carry cash or that they still still do carry cash? And I was like, you know, like the a lot of the places that I go to are frequent. You know, I'm, I'm not allowed to frequent the donut shop all the time anymore for health reasons. But um, uh you know, you, you do get changed. You might start off really slim with $1 and like, you know, the, you know, kind of the best laid plans is to, to stay with that. But if, if the cashier, you know, gives you change and all he has are ones, what are you going to do? It didn't fit in any kind of wallet that I had previously. Um, so I thought to, to, to showcase or highlight that, and the video was probably the most important thing. And if that particular thing resonated with folks, then we could do pretty well because really for all the slim wallets that are out there and they're actually, since we we want prior to us launching, there was probably a handful of Kickstarter type wallets, um, slim wallets. And now if you go look, I mean, you got to wade through a hundred different ideas of everybody kind of iterating on yeah. the same similar concepts. But um, our our whole focus, and I think for us is that, we're the only one that holds cash really, really well in kind of an effective way. We're not asking you to do it some other way. We're not asking you to put the, you know, like, oh, not, we don't really hold cash. We can hold your cards, but we don't hold cash. Or if we hold cash, you got to fold it three times or it's got to, if you stick it in the pocket, it's going to hang out the edge. I mean, kind of all the same problems that we have with existing wallets and products that are already out there. Um, you know, like I really wanted to solve that issue. And that's what I think the minimalist does is that it it helps you carry cash and sort of the you know downsize everything else like only what you need. Um, we called you know the you know kind of the definitive essentials wallet is what we were calling it. So just the essentials. People are always like, well, I can't carry ten cards. Well, that's not really what we were trying to do. Um, you're not being that minimalist at the point where you're carrying three or four cards extra that you yeah. use once every six months, maybe. 
Yeah, like even so, for me, like I'd mentioned how I kind of got into it and how, you know, what even drew my wife to decide, you know, to even mention it to me was, was the fact that I was, you know, I, like I'd said, I got rid of my fat wallet and I was just done with it. But I, I started just to go down to like, like you had said, the essentials and the essentials was literally just one card that would be my cash machine. And, and I, yeah, sh- sure. I guess I did carry some cash here and there after that. And there were a couple occasions where I'd actually had a couple bills in my pocket or whatever, and those two cars. And, but those are three loose objects, not attached to, you know, one single object. Right. And so I was, you know, begging for you to launch this even before you'd even kind of known about it. So that's, that is full disclosure for the show. It's not why you're on the show. Cause I bought it, but I was like, you know, I've got to talk to the guy who made this because that is just super neat. And plus you were on quit. I loved your story and I wanted to come on here and tell a bit more about it, but can we, can we talk numbers? I guess I I know we're at, uh, you know, hour and some change here. Uh, we'll probably go for another few more minutes here. We'll ask you the two signature questions, but, um, um, but I'm, I'm kind of curious about, about numbers. I'm, I don't know if you are or not, but I'm a fan of shark tank. Um, mm-hmm. and I, I watch that show religiously. Like if it's on, I got to watch it. And that's just how it is. But yeah. I love whenever, um, idea people, you know, maybe they're not quite founders yet. They've got, um, you know, let's say you went on a show like that. What are some of the numbers that uh, that you've been able to do, like gross sales this year? I mean, I know that you were able to, you know, overshoot your your pledge by, you know, quite a bit. But uh, even before the show, I was asking, like, so have you struck it rich? You know, obviously the answer is is no. You just got a really good, you know, for lack of better terms, kickstart. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I can I can share a little bit about that. Um, and we're still trying to figure out where the numbers fall, and, and we we have not even operated a, a, you know a full year, um, so I don't know like what I can expect going forward. You know, we have some ideas for what we would like to do, um, but I think you know everybody is always like, oh, you made six figures on Kickstarter. Um, you know, you must be rolling in it now. And it's actually the truth. It's far from the truth that, you know, Kickstarter is actually different and unique than if you were to just go get fundraising from, um, you know, angel investor or venture capital or something like that, because the, they, they take a percentage off the top right away. So like you're, you're dealing with 5% off the top to Kickstarter, another three to 5% off the top for, um, for Amazon, who does actually the credit card processing, right. so right away you're you lock off the top, and then I, you know, um, from there the rest of it's like, I mean, you have your total income, and then the huge, the next largest chunk of what you have to deliver is um, is is money to the IRS for tax reasons, yeah. because even though they call it fundraising, you're selling a tangible product to somebody. Um, if they pay you money and you give them product, it's counted as basically a, a retail sale. So that was not fun to kind of have to deal with that in terms of, you know, a huge chunk of the money being allocated to that. And then the rest of everything is is eaten up by the actual cost of producing the product and then also shipping the product. And shipping is actually fairly expensive as well. So I like the way you ship it too. I like the the car that you put in there. It was personal, even though, you know, you you know, it's expensive to ship. I, I really enjoyed the way you presented it when I got it though. Yeah. It's funny. Like I, um, since we put this out there, I, I you know, I, 
Um, and I, you know, my background obviously in, in the hotel school is in the service industry. And one of the things I always taught about is, you know, you always, even if you're a product business, you're still in the service business. Yes, yeah, sure. And that really, you know, that's one of the things that I definitely learned back then is that, um, you know, I wanted every single person that I feel an obligation to every single person who's purchased a wallet or gifted a wallet to somebody, um, a minimalist is that, you know, I, I stand behind it. Like I really believe in the product. I've done everything I can to make it the best that I can at this point in time. And we're constantly improving and evolving and, and finding ways to make it better. Um, and so if you have a problem with it, like we handle it, like we don't have a stated policy of like, you know, how long the product will last. Cause you know, obviously we're not, we're not certain yet. Um, but in terms of the things that we've done for existing customers and if they've had issues, we, we definitely um, do everything we can to, <clears throat> take care of them and that's what i mean like this um you know, each and every one i sell every customer i feel is like a, a, a friend um and i feel a certain obligation to them uh, for the product to make sure that it works and works to their satisfaction but back back on the the costing wise so that's pretty much um you know where all the the numbers get eaten up a bulk, a bulk portion of that obviously is producing the product. And then the, the final kind of remaining product that, uh, remaining funds that I had, I actually, um, applied those into, um, intellectual property protection. Um, so I applied for a patent and I registered a name and setting up the business and doing all those kinds of things to get, to get ready for yeah. a real live launch, which we had recently in April. That's smart. I mean, reinvesting the, proverbial profits from from that uh make a lot of sense yeah so in that uh i know we talked a little bit about some different things there um what are you do you have any predictions i know you got your own store now you're obviously out of the kickstarter you're off on your own you have ip filed your own site you're at uh was it capsulewallets.com right is that yep okay. capsulewallets.com okay i just want to make sure I, I have a bad habit of remembering domain names wrong so Basically, yeah. not getting them right. Um, uh, it happened a couple of times recently on the show, so I, I hate doing that when I do that because I get so caught up in the story, I forget the domain name, and I don't go there every day. I just, you know, Google's my friend, right? Just capsule and boom. Yeah, you know, you search capsule walls, exactly. capsule minimalist, you'll find it. Exactly. So, I mean, what are what are you predicting then this year? So now you're out of the Kickstarter because you shipped them all in December last year, so January all this year so far, and you know we're now getting ready to enter into June. What uh, what were what are growth sales at now? What are you predicting for the remainder of the year? Um, well, we just started in in April, so we don't have a oh, good sense okay. of gross sales. Um, we spent a lot of time kind of revisiting the product. We actually found a new manufacturer based on our kind of anticipated volume. There were other people that I was talking to that. Um, Anyway, we're fortunate now that we have a manufacturer that actually is it's a European company that that has um, facilities that help us make the minimalist. And we get now basically constructed right alongside some of the world's leading luxury goods. Um, so our manufacturing quality is, is really, really high now. Um, and then we spent a lot of time in developing the packaging and branding so that we could have um, a new launch or a platform that would help us evolve 
once we get past the phase of, of dealing with minimalists. And we're going to, we have, people are always asking us like, what's the next product? What's, what's the next thing? But we, yeah. I think have barely, barely tipped the iceberg of what we can do in terms of our reach for the minimalists. So we're going to focus a lot of that, of our attention on that for now. I'm, you know, always cautious about not overextending what we can do. We're still, we're a bootstrapped company. We have no, like I said, no outside investors. Um, every dollar that we earn gets rolled right back into the company to, to try to build up, um, and add new features or add new or do new projects. But the big thing that we're doing now is that we just recently made the decision to, um, to participate in the dwell on design show. Like, I don't know if you're familiar with dwell magazine, but they're um, kind of like a, a household lifestyle magazine f- focused on kind of modern, modern, um, home design and modern like furniture and accessories design. So they have a big trade show out here. Um, every year in Los Angeles, and we're um, just just recently signed last week signed up to be a participant or exhibitor at that show. So we're really really excited for that. That's actually not we haven't even announced that, but um, folks on the listener, we, if you're in the LA area, definitely try to make it to the show. Come by and say hi. That's refreshing to hear you say that. Uh, I mean, because I wasn't going to ask you if you're you know what's next. When you're, I mean, because I think that. You got enough on the cart. You should, um, you know, optimize it and focus on distribution. And you know, this, you know, it's still not a household name yet. You know, it's not known by everyone. And I think, um, you know, I think men everywhere should have this wallet, honestly, because, I mean, if you're if you're still carrying the fat wallet, you gotta <laughs> gotta minimize, man. That's I I like keeping my wallet in my front pocket now. Where it's mm-hmm. more, I don't know. I just, you know, I just got sick of sitting on something all the time. And um, there are a few trends that are helping us. I mean, there's all this talk about you know digitizing the wall and making phone more transaction focused. And yeah. then, you know, there's a whole trend for like slimmer fitting clothing. So those things are all useful in the eye. Just if you have a really really fat wallet, it's, it makes it more difficult for you. I'm wondering how many um, how many times we could say fat wallet on this show. That's what I'm. Trying to count it like seven or eight now, by the way. We should take a shot every time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, so my next question for you then, and, and not just because I'm a fan of the Shark Tank, but I'm just kind of curious. Um, you know, I know you said no outside funding and stuff like that, but I know that one of the biggest uh, challenges in this space, I mean, just maybe just from watching that show, I don't have a ton of retail experience, but just from watching that show, it seems like it's kind of hard to, to get in there and, and even harder to get some of the connections into the retail places that can really, you know, do a lot of huge orders for you. I mean, is that something that you thought or have ever thought that you might pursue? Maybe not Shark Tank in particular, but just, mm-hmm. a, you know, something, a platform like that that can help you sure. get over or get in there quicker or, you know, get larger focuses of revenue or maybe even other Kickstarter. Yeah, well, the, I mean, with Shark Tank in particular is tough. I did definitely look at that prior. Um, but you, regardless of whether or not you get funded, like the fact that you announced your product on on yeah. CBS or whatever network, they get you sign away certain rights to some revenue and perpetuity. I think to the to the studio or to the network, and it just that seemed really really silly to me. Um, you know, like if we're talking about not having to make decisions based on other people and um, focusing on our own thoughts and ideas. And that really just, you know, makes things extra tough. Of course, you know, having that kind of 
marketing and publicity can blow the product up. But I also am a strong believer that if we, if you design a really, really good product that resonates with people, you'll find a way to make it successful. So I'm hoping that that's the case for our, you know, our minimalist product is that, you know, we get really, really great feedback from all the customers that use it. Um, we definitely have had um, retailers reach out to us um, that want to, you know, carry our line. And I think we're just being very, very careful and protective about how we do that because, first of all, we're not we're not experts in this space. Um, so, we, you know, and we're not interested in, in you know, blowing up per se. Um, I, when I started this journey, like I wanted to make sure that Capsule was going to be sort of a longstanding brand and have – a long life and not be sort of a flash in the pan. So, you know, folks might think that we're taking it very, very slow or too slow. We might miss the boat, um, which, you know, could be a possibility, but I think we're, we're doing whatever we can to make the, the right decisions at the right time. And I think at the point where retail makes sense for us with the right retail partner, um, it, uh, it will, something will definitely entertain, just right now, like you know, I explained to you the the the, the size of the business. We're so small and just family owned, and um, it's essentially just me, like all the way from product design to manufacturing to um, processing orders to customer service. You know, there's maybe my one full time person and myself, and then you know, part time from a couple of other folks. So to have to deal with the requirements of a retail. Like I want to be able to satisfy our customers needs, even if they're either the end customer or even just a retail customer. And, um, you know, when we're ready to do that is when we're ready to do that. If that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it sounds, I mean, that sounds like a good approach because it, it seems like you're very calculated and surgical with how you want to take your growth and the next opportunities, because it's, it seems like, You've also, um, you know, maybe you've got either finances or time on your side because when you don't have to rush into a decision, you can be a bit more calculated or wise about your next move. And it seems like, you know, you're kind of in a game of chess, you know, and, and theoretically you could make a wrong move and Caps could be gone next year, you know, but hopefully that's um, not the case because of the, the carefulness that you're taking this next step. Yeah, I know. It's like um, we're in the kind of kindling stage where it's like we, we can start a flame or maybe we have a little flame going, but it's definitely not a roaring fire. And I just don't want to do anything that will extinguish extinguish that opportunity prematurely. So there are a lot of Kickstarter sites, um, or successful Kickstarter projects that you'll see um, where they're on like the different, uh, you know, group group sites or discount sites or like flash sale type sites. Um, I'm just not sure that that matches with our whole um, brand identity. Like, you know, I was like you, I carried a couple of cards by itself. Then I evolved to a rubber band to kind of keep it all tied together. But the challenge that I always had was that when I was pulling these, my wallet out to pay for, um, you know, business meetings with clients that like in the back of my mind, I always felt, uh, you know, not that I was embarrassed per se, but I had to think about like, what were they going to, you know, unf- you know, what were they going to, how are they going to view this? Like I'm wearing a suit and tie and I'm, you know, very, you know, polished in terms of the presentation of everything else. And then my wallet is like an afterthought, like, and then, you know, it's kind of like, 
you know, the extreme is if you pulled out a Velcro wallet in a situation where you're in a big client meeting and you're trying yeah. to close a deal. Like, it just didn't present itself well. So, you know, we want to be, you know, in that sophisticated, um, you know, kind of more discerning individual who's who's paying attention to that kind of stuff. So if, if we're asking our customers to do that, then we have to do that, too. We can't we can't be on every single discount side and all over the place. And then before you know it, we're, um, you know, in the the bargain bin at Target or something. So um, that's one of the things that we're very, very cognizant of is just making sure we protect our fledgling brand um, to build it into something that people will enjoy for for a long time. That's a that's a really wise um, answer to that. Honestly, I mean, not that I didn't expect it, but just to yeah i don't know to be that protective of it and to have that kind of care shows that uh you know it shows that you're not desperate that you really have you know a longevity intention here and that goes to show for those of you out there that are just not being exposed to capsule and what robert's done here and what he's doing here and what his plan is that you know if you buy this wallet or if you you know uh, buy into this you know this presentation of what your wallet should be then you know you're gonna get that level of care, and like I said, I love the packaging I got us in. I was like, mm-hmm. I mean, I just didn't expect that from a Kickstarter. I, I don't don't know why I would think anything less of it, but when I got it, I was like, wow, this is really sweet. And obviously, I yeah, think well, my wife really well, and I got it as an early Christmas present too. I didn't have to wait until Christmas Day to get it either. It was, it was she's like, no, you need this now. You're gonna, you know, your fat wallet's in the in the cupboard, and you're not getting it back out. And I, plus, it's from the ex girlfriend, so who cares, right? Then. Got to gotta get you something that's organizable and uh, doesn't make you feel like you can't go to a closing table and, and show off your wallet, you know? Yeah, I know. And there's actually a funny story behind the, the packaging. Um, when I was originally coming up with the concept for it, there were a couple of, you know, main contributing factors for why we ended up with that general um, design. Obviously, our, our product is small and slim, and I, I, you know, most of the alternatives are to put it in a big box. But then, you know, you start adding up all these boxes, and then you have to transport and you have to store. So there was definitely kind of a an idea to minimize all of that, and also, you know, where our whole mantra is is, is this this kind of minimalism type um, philosophy. <laughs> but the the actual concept behind the packaging was that the envelope. Uh, it was something that you could use to store your old wallet in. And then there was um, um, a, the, the pouch inside. You could take out all the excess stuff from your old wallet and put it in there. And then once you've got everything curated down, then you can easily and smoothly transition to the the minimalist. And I, I know we haven't really promoted that as a, a feature, but that's kind of the original concept for how that was supposed to work. Whether or not people do that, I think a lot of people take it and they – Hopefully, aren't throwing it away. Uh, we spend a fair amount of money on, on on creating the packaging, and actually, you can see the updated packaging. Some folks have done some pretty cool YouTube videos for us, um, um, talking about our product and showcasing kind of like how the how the the product gets delivered and the packaging and whatnot. Yeah. Um, but I think that is a question for folks: is like, what do you want to do with it um, afterwards? But the idea was that you could toss your old wallet and and, and old stuff in there, and then put it away and then go minimal. I don't know if that's what you did, but no, no, that's not, I was already minimal. I'd already, I'd already made my oh, decision. That's right. You were down to two. Yeah, I was, that was done. Um, yeah. I, as soon as I, I didn't even, um, 
you know, I certainly appreciated what you sent it in, but I, as soon as I got the wallet, I was just like, yeah, right to the candy. You know, I didn't, yeah. I didn't waste time. You know, I, I went right in. Screw the wrapper. Yeah, exactly. I put my two cards and I happened to have gotten, um, and then not long after that, I got some cash for, for Christmas too from, from my nice. mother-in-law. So I, I put that, uh, that hundred dollar bill into the, uh, uh, what what is it called again? It, let me. It's called the cash. That's strap. right, the cash strap. Yeah, so I slid it right in the cash strap. Single hundred dollar bill didn't move, and uh, I was loving life. So that was that was <laughs> really awesome. And then it looked yeah. even cooler too because it was like a hundred bucks. It wasn't just like a buck. You know, it was a yeah. hundred dollar bill, uh, nice and yep. crisp. So, yeah. Uh, well, Robert, it's it's been great chatting with you. Let's let's uh, run out the show and talk about the the two cool things we talk about at the end of the show, which is. Um, uh, the first question, I guess, has become uh, known is, who is your founder hero? Um, my founder hero actually is Phil Knight. Uh, he's actually a co-founder of Nike. Um, anybody who knows me knows that I'm a huge apo- Nike apologist. I, I don't wear, you know, I'm a pretty active guy and I, I don't wear any <laughs> any other athletic gear other than the Nike and you know um, I just feel so strongly about their you know how they evolved as a brand where they started from I mean the guy was selling sneakers out of the trunk of his hatchback you know on making things on the waffle iron at home and I, that that particular story really resonates with me is like you know he was tinkering and then made it work and then grew a company into this major, major brand that actually um, affects people like at all different levels. Yeah. You know, they make super high end technical stuff for professionals, but they also have everyday kind of like active gear that's affordable for at, at the um, at the tail end. So, um, I'm just a huge fan. I'd, I'd never. Um... Never would have expected that one, but that that certainly makes some sense because, uh, I mean, the the Nike brand is, has built so many things. I mean, so many different product lines, and uh, it's pretty neat, though. So how did how did yeah. you get exposed to this fellow? I mean, just by through the Nike brand itself, or did you, you know, kind of read a documentary or a you know behind yeah, the I mean, story? I know, like as a fan of Nike, I, I know the story, right. and I read all about it and i actually have i have friends that work there and it's just been a kind of a long-standing relationship that i've personally had with the brand over time and i just really really appreciate that you know they 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 do really think about you know how is this going to work for the their customer um so from you know i know i know they've nike has had flack in the past for like you know where they manufacture things and how they how they take care of you know the the people that are actually building their products that they ultimately sell but i think um that's kind of like a, a shallow way of looking at things you know i've now had the opportunity even when i was in consulting to look at you know the facilities and um and factories of where product gets made and and the kind of the the diligence that companies go through especially because it's such a visible kind of topic um and how they how they build things um it's you know they make things where it's certainly it's cost effective but also they have to answer to the general community and consumers and you know how they do it and i think um i think is is a pretty good way to do it yeah absolutely um and i i guess the the closing question um some sometimes people sway away from this one and i'm i'm hoping you don't 
Um, I'm hoping you have something fun too to announce for it. But um, you know, what's what's on the horizon for you, for Capsule, for Minimalist? What's what's next? What's something that no one knows about that you can announce here on the show today? Sure. Well, I mean, the the Capsule brand in and of itself is is sort of all about making everyday products better. And you know, the minimalist is really our first foray into that. If you can kind of get a sense as to what we want to do, we want to take products that are kind of traditionally overlooked and find ways to make them function better and have a nice, clean, sophisticated aesthetic to them. I mean, that's the goal is to create products in that regard. Um, so I don't have any specific announcements in terms of like, do we have a new product? Cause I t- touched on the fact that we have, um, we're going to focus and really do our best to make the minimalist the best we can. Um, but, um, I mentioned it very briefly early on is that we are going to be at our very first trade show and basically have our very first, um, retail experience. Cause we'll be able to, um, sell product, um, at the show. So it's, um, our first pop-up shop basically. So that's kind of the, 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 the main announcement is that we'll have that, um, at, from June 21st to the 23rd at the Los Angeles Convention Center. Um, if you're uh, near or in the area, you can make it out. Certainly come by and say hi. It's really one of the only opportunities, short of meeting us or people that actually are carrying um, uh, the product like yourself, uh, to touch and feel and see um, see how the minimalist works. Any plans to reach out to some of the minimalist owners in the area to, to kind of maybe get get them to come out and cheerlead for lack of better terms yeah absolutely i think that's one of the things we're planning to do um in the next couple weeks is to find out and round up as many as we can we we can provide a discount to the show um for folks using um, our our code and so we want to definitely share that with folks i think it's save five if you want to get five bucks off the, the the entrance fee um and we'll post that on our facebook at uh um, capsule wallets and also on our Twitter, which is also our Twitter handle is also capsule wallets. So, um, we'll have a lot of publicity kind of coming around on that in the next, uh, couple of weeks, but certainly we'll have some nice giveaways and, and swag, so to speak. Um, but most importantly, you'll be able to kind of see all of the product that we have available, um, and look and feel and touch. Uh, so if you have any hesitation as to, you know, making a purchase online, this is the, the, the first real opportunity you'll have to um, see it in a, a live environment. That's awesome. Make sure uh, if there is a link or something like that, we can also put in the show notes. We'll, we'll put it in the show notes. But I did also add um, your Facebook and your Twitter and a couple of the links there. So for those listening, um, for, for those not listening live, I suppose, uh, or even if you're listening live, I don't think you can see it now yet, but... It will be at flybyfly.tv slash founders talk slash 44. So show notes will be there. We'll put a link out to the minimalist site, the Kickstarter, so you can go back in time and kind of look at Robert's uh, video or the, the famed donut shop video. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also really enjoyed the, the POV version of it too, or like that point of view looking down at your wallet. I mean, that was, right. I mean, I, I saw the donut shop one, but the one I was talking about was the looking down one. But um, yeah, I, yeah. I, mean, I love just the, the direction you took with that. I mean, I think a lot of what you've done, um, you know, especially one of the things I really appreciate about this show is kind of getting to rewind almost all the way back to the beginning to see what your roots are and where you came from and then kind of slowly inching our way forward 
to, to, you know, various opportunities and different choices and things in your life. Like we kind of touched a little bit about it, but I mean, you're also a family man. So, I mean, you're making wise, careful decisions because, you know, not that uh, not being a family man is, is not good, but just, you know, you've got people to take care of, you know, and, uh, two dogs, of course. Right. So, I mean, you (laughs) you can't, uh, you got to take care of those pups. Right. I mean, so, um, but yeah, definitely if, if you can get uh, me a link, I'll put the, the link to, um, the trade show information and, and time and whatnot uh, in in the show notes, and I'll even make sure I put the the discount code in there if they can go there or whatever. So if you're listening to this, yeah. you reach out to Robert about going there. Um, you know, he mentioned Facebook and Twitter, so hit him up there. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think you know that talking about roots, like I'm a a problem solver by nature, and I just always am turned off by having you know, like especially on in the online experience where you don't have the ability to touch and feel and try out products all the time that I wanted to make sure that we adequately communicated and, you know, assuaged as many fears as we could for folks who are like, Oh, I can't use it this way or I can't do it that way. So I know that one video where we do the point of view is really, really long. Um, probably ramble on a little bit. I liked it. Honestly, um, I, I thought it was great. I think that, yeah. um, I mean, it just really shows the versatility. I mean, cause you shove so much stuff in there. I was, and the biggest, I mean, we're probably, probably save some of this for the after dark, but, um, what, what really sold me on it, I was like, you know, it's a leather wallet. And one of the biggest things you said was that, you know, sure you can put a lot of stuff in it, but it won't stretch. It'll, it, it's the type of material that will kind of come back and not be continually stretched out. Like my fat wallet now is forever a fat wallet because it's stretched, yeah. you know, whereas yours, you designed it, manufactured it, and planned it to give when it needs to give, but also come back when you wanted to go back to, let's say just down to two cards. Like I am say, sometimes I've got four cards in there cause I might be going somewhere for an extended period of time and I need to have more stuff with me. But my, you know, my normal, uh, card and carry is just, you know, two, two things in there and some cash if I have it, you know? Yeah. Well, if you, if you hang out sort of in the area of four to six cards, you will likely never have an issue with, the, the leather stretching out too much. Some folks, you know, stretch, you know, put, you know, they kind of on the high end, put in, you know, eight, nine, 10 cards. And then, you know, you may have a little bit of an issue, but most, you know, it's funny because, you know, people are always talking about, you know, things falling out of their wallet. But if you're like me, you, you generally ha- handle your wallet with some care. It's not a football or anything. So you're not throwing it across the room. Right. You, you know, you, you know, I come home, I take out my phone. I, you don't, you don't launch your phone across the room and land it on the kitchen counter when you get home. You you take it out of your pocket and you place it. So as long as you're careful with it, um, you shouldn't have any issue with contents, you know, sliding out um, um, uh, on accident. But the thing that we really focused on was the cash strap, which we know that, you know, leather does have a natural tendency to stretch. But we've designed on the latest version of the, the strap and even the version that you have a really, really durable kind of reinforced structure to the the strap so that it will that's the one area on your wallet that will for sure not stretch and you'll be able to you know go from one bill up to pretty much as many as you carry you know we say as much as you can carry you know we have folks that regularly have you know 30 bills in it um and it holds it just fine and even when you come back down to one uh, there's a little trick you can do is if you you kind of wedge the bill down into the corner yeah. where the stitching is, yeah. like it holds it just fine. Um, yeah, I've never had any issues so. with the person. I mean, I, I, yeah. uh, I've I've pushed it to its limits on a couple of occasions, and I've come back down to my typical minimal way. But 
that's what I love most about it is that no matter the type of situation I'm in, it's going to be, it's going to be the wallet I want to use. But uh, let's close out this. We'll go into we'll go into the after dark. So if you're a long time listener of the show, you know we have an after dark. So stick around if uh, if you if you plan to. Um, if you're listening on the podcast, you can go back to five by five or go into Instacast or whatever you're using to subscribe to podcasts and subscribe. If you're not already doing so to after dark. Uh, so we'll, we'll have one of those for this, but the show broadcasts every Tuesday. Sorry, not Tuesdays. That's, that's the change law. My bad. Uh, the show, uh, broadcasts live every Wednesday, uh, at 5 PM central standard time on five by five. You can go to five by five TV slash founders talk. And you will see the show there next week. Uh, first of all, I'm announcing the next week's guest. I'm going to start doing this more often. But next week's guest, June 5th, Dalton Caldwell, back for his part two. We're going to talk about app.net specifically and a bunch of other fun stuff. If you got questions, let me know. Follow me on Twitter, Adam Stack, or Founders Talk on Twitter, either or. But, uh, Robert, uh, let's... Let's uh, let's go in after dark. But thanks so much for tuning in, and uh, thanks so much for joining me on this show. All right, thanks for having me. It's been awesome.